Much of the history we in the English-speaking world have of World War II focuses on the campaigns in Russia, Messerschmitt's dogfighting with Spitfires over London, and the massive island campaigns in the Pacific between the Japanese and Americans. But one of the two founding members of the Axis powers, Italy, receives much less attention as its involvement does not neatly fit into the narrative of the World War, having begun operations as a fascist state in the 1920s and leaving the war early in 1943. The post-armistice period, however, was arguably the most difficult for Italy, as the civil war that broke out between the fascist, communist, and ordinary people took a tremendous toll on the social fabric of Italian families, and over one million men were forcibly taken to Germany to work in their war factories. Piero San Giorgio, grandson of one of these men, joins us tonight to tell his story. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. It is our first episode of the year 2021 and our 201 episode. Uh, we have the pleasure of being joined by a very special guest who has come on before, uh, but this is his first appearance after the uh, demolition of the United States, as we're uh, anticipating very shortly. Um, but Piero San Giorgio uh, comes from Switzerland. Uh, he's a very uh, prolific author. He focuses on uh, survival and writing about potential collapse of uh, advanced industrial economies. And so we've talked to him about that before. But uh, today we wanted to talk about uh, a story that he wrote uh, about a person who was captured during World War II and uh, forced to work for the uh, German government. Uh, and it's titled uh, Giuseppe. Um, so this person, if you couldn't already figure out, uh, comes from Italy. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, Piero, is this a true story? Well, first of all, thank you very much for your invitation. And uh, it's always nice to have um, uh, to be on a channel where we can have a free discussion. Um, and we hope that it's going to last. So this is, um, this is a story of my grandfather. My grandfather, Giuseppe Vercelli, who was born in 1906 in Italy. And uh, I, tell, I, I tell his story. Um, and um, it is a true story. And um, I had to fill whatever holes in the story that, I, that unfortunately I couldn't find through the interviews of many other members of my family, people who met him. And of course, being a story set in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, in Italy and in Greece and in Germany during the war, um, it was very difficult to find uh, accounts, for example, of, of his stay in uh, the camp. He was a prisoner in Germany, so I had to go to see archives. It was very hard to find 
uh, of course, personal stories, because that was not the point of, uh, of that institution. However, I did find um, information about the mechanics and uh, how life was or- organized in those places. And um, I want to precise that this was a internment pr- camp for prisoners, not it was not a concentration camp for political prisoners or for others. So I want to be very clear, uh, this is not a story about um, uh, Jewish um, prisoners in camps or something like that. It is an Italian national, uh, and I think it's a story that many people outside of Italy don't really know. Um, and um, so the story is, um, is completely true. I, of course, had to imagine some of the uh, uh, interaction with, for example, some of the prison guards. Uh, and, for example, to give another, another idea, my grandfather told me about how he came back and how he negotiated him leaving um, the, 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 the German area where he was in while in custody from the Soviet Red Army who liberated him at the end. I explained that towards the end of the book. And he said that he came back by foot. And um, he, he gave me some anecdotes, and I had to figure out from my memory, from interviewing people, how, how could he walk back from East Germany, from what is now Eastern part of Germany, what was then also Eastern part of Germany, back to Italy by foot. And I figured out that, uh, of course, there were some, uh, some elements of the story which uh, had to be different. For example, he had to take the train to go back from Italy, from München, from Munich in southern Germany, who was occupied by, uh, by Americans. And I did find out that Americans did organize repatriation of prisoners of war, of Italian prisoners of war, to Italy by train. So, in fact, he, didn't he did not do 100% of the, of the trip by foot. He probably walked from Germany, from eastern Germany to München, and I figured out that he must have had a train transport from München. So, so I'd make that account. So I kind of crisscross uh, through archives, through personal memories of mine and personal memories of, of people in my family to, to make a story that is, that is not just the story of one man, a small little man in the middle of the big history, but also to show some of the, his feelings that he might have and that he had, and he, as he told me. And of course, as I, as I write in the, in the, you know, the postface of the book where I give my account of how I wrote the book, uh, it is always very difficult to write books based on memory. And as we know, memories can be exaggerated. Memories can be also um, mi- mitigated in, in a way. Sometimes people are shy. They are especially simple people of those times, at least people from my community, they don't exaggerate. They don't tell stories of heroes. They don't tell stories of extreme suffering. In fact, they tend to be um, minimizing what happened to them. They say, oh, it wasn't that bad, when in fact I know that it was very bad because it was the war. And, and, so, and so this is, um, I would say, it's a probably 80% true story and 20% I had to fill the gaps by uh, poetic license, as, as, we, as we say in writing. Uh, and, and I try to be as realistic as possible in, in, in the terms of those times, just as well as I had to. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to give a voice, uh, of course, to Italian people uh, of the times. I wanted to have uh, to give a balanced voice. And so I, in this book, they're communists speaking, they're fascists speaking, they're Nazis speaking, they're Russians speaking, they're Germans. There are all sorts of people from the time who basically 
have to make up with the situation, have to go along inside that difficult time that was the World War II and, and the years before World War II. And, um, and I tried to make a story of, um, you know, a simple man, in, in, and I mean this in a very positive way, a simple man in very dark times, very difficult times. Well, I think a lot of people don't know that Italy was not part of the war after 1943. And what happened to Italy was not only was part of it being bombarded by the Americans uh, in their very famous book uh, called Catch-22 that uh, most school children in America are taught. And this actually describes this process where the bombers were flattening much of southern Italy. Uh, but the north of Italy was occupied by Germany. Uh, and this, um, this I, I suppose, was what happened that caused your grandfather to go into this labor camp. Uh, the, the politics of that are very complicated, but I just wanted to explain right off the beginning how people could understand this context. But the book starts uh, actually before the war. Uh, it's during uh, fascism, the beginning of fascism, uh, or at least right after World War One, and then soon thereafter, Mussolini takes power. So Italy was um, actually a very damaged place. It, it actually lost more people during the First World War than it did in the Second World War. And a lot of people were leaving. And the people that stayed uh, were more interested in a different way of life. And I think this is how Mussolini took power. Uh, and I think your book talks a little bit about what this was like. And your grandfather in particular, I believe, worked in the uh, cement industry, which was one of the, the key industries that Italy tried to promote as something that demonstrated the industrial progress of the nation. Uh, could you talk about how, how the beginning of the book uh, was for your grandfather? That's correct. And in, in fact, um, my grandfather was telling me of his very first memories uh, in during and just after World War One, which was a disaster for Italy. It was a victory nominally, but it was a disaster humanly. It was a disaster economically and uh, politically, just as many countries at that time, there was a lot of per turmoil after the war with communists, uh, revolutionaries trying to uh, topple the country and take power, just as they did in Hungary, just as they tried to do in Germany and, and, and succeeded uh, in 1917 in, in Russia. And uh, at the same time, there were different brands of socialism fighting uh, for power. And obviously, there were the traditionalists, the, the, the royalists. Of course, Italy was a kingdom at the time. Uh, the, the Christians, uh, Catholics, uh, precisely, who had... Um, very different range of morals from from the communists, of course, but some of them supported a so, uh, 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 halfway socialist movement, the Christian socialists, and um, and all of that was in the middle of of uh, an economic depression because suddenly the production for war start, stopped, and uh, these um, the early 1920s were a time of very strong political strife. And Mussolini, who was a socialist, he was clearly, uh, and in fact was was the owner of the socialist um, newspaper, um, basically ended up regrouping some of the nationalists, the veterans of the war, and managed to strike a deal with the industrialists, the owners of the large industries and the um, uh, agricultural lands. Italy was unfortunately a, a fairly poor country at the time compared to 
to others. And, um, and that kind of uh, negotiation, negotiation of a deal enabled him and his fascist troops, which at the time fascist was not a bad word as it is today. It was a, a political movement that was actually admired by many famous leaders across the world. Um, Winston Churchill was, was not shy of saying how much he admired. Yeah, including uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States in 1933. He had actually, his wife in particular, had talked uh, fondly of the Mussolini government. Yeah, and uh, it is, um, so at the time it was quite politically um, acceptable movement, and that ended up through a, a sort of half a coup that the king of Italy nominated Benito Mussolini as a prime minister, and, and through different approaches he consolidated both his power, but also he, his policies uh, really did uh, put Italy back to work, reducing unemployment, putting the industries um, to develop for both internal markets, but also for exports. And um, the people of the South, for example, who were um, migrating en masse to Argentina, to America, to Canada, suddenly had jobs. And uh, the country was very happy and very satisfied of that regime, which certainly moved to a bit of a more authoritarian approach, but it was nothing of the kind that you could see, for example, in the Soviet Union at the same time, which had millions of people killed or sent to the Gulag, and certainly had nothing comparable to, for example, Nazi Germany in terms of authoritarianism and even racial policies. Italy is a fairly, well, I wouldn't say homogeneous, but certainly it is homogeneous racially, if not culturally, and, uh, and certainly it was successful. And up until, nine, up until the start of the war in 1940 for Italy, the people were extremely satisfied to the point that even communist opponents to the regime of Mussolini wrote in private letters uh, that it was a fact that almost 100% of the people were satisfied, including communists, because it had this balance between socialism and nationalism. And at the same time, it allowed for businesses to succeed and, and make money. And so it was a kind of a hybrid between capitalism, um, socialism, and nationalism. And it was very successful. And, and, and indeed, it was admired by, by many other people across the world. And in those times, well, my grandfather was a young man. And he, as many young men, he, he wasn't interested so much about politics. He, he wanted, he was happy to have a job, in, indeed, in the cement industry. And I describe in a few chapters how, how was that life. It was not an easy life, but it was well paid com compared to other jobs at the time. So he could develop uh, his, uh, uh, you know, when, when you're young and you see that the future is brighter, um, you're happy. You see that, uh, you know, you start your life with one pair of shoes and then you can buy a bicycle and then you can ride to the, to the local city and go to, to dance, dances in the, on Saturdays evenings and perhaps meet, meet some woman and have a fiance and things like that. This is what young people want. And this is what that system allowed. And while he wasn't, he wasn't political at all, and in fact, in the, in the industry of mining, of course, he wasn't a manager. He was deep in the mine shafts, <laughs> breaking the stones to get, to get the cement ore out. 
and um, to, so that the factory could produce the cement that was exported to, uh, to many other cities ac across Italy. Well, um, even, that was a kind of a socialist environment, and yet people didn't really care. They said, well, after all, our jobs are good, our salaries are improving, are improving, so everything is fine. And, and when you're young, this is enough. And, and so I describe how we developed, how we, he grew up in Italy of those times, what kind of entertainments they had, the, the passion for football, I mean, soccer at the time, and, uh, and uh, Italy was twice world champion in 1934 and 1938, so that gave a lot of prestige for people. And, and, and this simple happiness was, was what made it, what constituted the good life. And, and that went on at least uh, until Italy went on to war. So what were the reasons for Italy going to war? I have my theories, and many historians have wondered if this was more Mussolini than Italy, but maybe you can explain what the motivations were. Well, of course, um, I will tell you my, my thoughts, but my grandfathers had no idea. <laughs> he was not interested in this thing, even if he went to, he describes, uh, in the, I describe in his book how he went through military service, and I remember he was telling me um, that they were basically training how to march, how to obey orders, how to recognize and salute ranks in the proper way. So the army wasn't really fascist. It was still the old Kingdom of Italy style army. It was very process oriented, very much about numbers and parade. And it was really not well trained at all, uh, even by the standards of the time. They had um, nice looking uniforms, but quite bad equipment and equipment was lacking for, for most people. And he did part of his military service in Libya, which was an Italian colony at the time. And unfortunately for them, they hadn't discovered the petrol that was under their, their feet. Otherwise, it, they would have been rich. <laughs> but um, but no, they didn't know there was there was oil. Oil was discovered after the war. And, and so in that very poor uh, place, Italy was dreaming of, um, and Mussolini was dreaming, and his propaganda machine was pushing the idea of a new Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, and so a lot of colonists were, or Italian colonists were, were settled in, uh, in Libya from 1911 onwards, in fact. And... Um, and my grandfather was there in the desert, and I remember as a, as a small child that he was telling me, for example, the stories of how he, he met in Africa, in Libya, a dinosaur. And as a child, I was laughing that he was telling me stories about the dinosaur. And of course, as I grew older, I figured out that it wasn't at all, <laughs> it wasn't obviously a dinosaur. It was just bones in the desert that looked like bones of dinosaur, but in fact were bones of whales and, uh, and, and sea whales. Because obviously, twenty thousand years ago, part of part of Libya was 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 an ocean, was part of uh, the, the Mediterranean. It was the waters were higher. Probably they also had global warming at some point. But um, the 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 idea was to show that there was, in fact, lack of preparation for the war, in, as as seen from even even simple people who were simple soldiers could see that. Italy was not prepared for any kind of war, and uh, it came as a surprise in 1936 um, uh, when Italy was involved in the Spanish Civil War and had to send its best equipment and best troops over there. 
to a mitigated uh, result. And in 1937-38, went to war against Abyssinia, which is Ethiopia, which was one of the last uh, independent countries, um, only independent countries in Africa, and won, and won quite spectacularly, and using all the the, the modern equipment of the time, including um, combat gas, including, of course, aerial bombing and and fast-moving tanks. And so that gave the illusion, I think, to, to Italians and to the leadership, especially Mussolini, that Italy was a powerful war nation and was able to, to conduct war just as well as Germany, just as well as France, which was considered the best uh, army in the world at the time. And um, when uh, in, uh, in 1939, Germany went to, went to war, and actually I forget to say that, Italy became an ally of Germany, and I think it was, Italy was pushed by, by Anthony Eden, which was the prime minister of England. So what I'm saying now is not what my grandfather told me, because my grandfather probably he didn't even know who was Anthony Eden, and, and, and as he was in his daily life. But I have to comment, and I, I add comments uh, in the book on, on some of the geostrategic things that are happening at the time, that were happening at the time, just to explain to the reader why suddenly something happened. But for example, in that case, my grandfather could never know about the Conference of Stresa, which basically showed that Italy was not very fond of Nazi Germany, especially because of its expansionism and annexing Austria. And, um, and, and one, has to, one has to remember that Anthony Eden, as a foreign minister of, of Britain, basically pushed for uh, the Society of Nations to make embargoes and economic sanctions against Italy when Italy attacked Abyssinia, which was considered by Italy extremely unfair since England ruled half of Africa and half of the world and had colonized uh, and made war so, to so many nations, and so did France and, and so did other, other nations. And why, why would they not allow Italy to do the same? So it was considered as unfair. Of course, we today think that why would all of these nations go into those places? Uh, makes no sense, but okay, it was, it was so at the time. And, uh, and that pushed Italy to, towards the only other European power who was supporting her, which was Germany. And one has to remember that Mussolini was fluent in German, and uh, Hitler was um, uh, a very seductive personality in private, it seems. He, 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 they, we have some accounts of the encounter that Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini had at the Brenner Pass in 1938, when they decided to make the alliance. The uh, was it called the Steel Pact? Pact of Steel. Between, yeah. Pact of Steel between Italy and Germany, and then that became the uh, the, 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 the the alliance, which included also Japan later on. And when Germany went to war, uh, of course, that alliance was a defensive alliance. Italy stayed neutral. In 1939, when Italy, when 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 Germany went to war with um, with Poland, and when England, when Britain and France declared war on Germany, Italy also stayed neutral. And um, it was only in, on June 10th, 1940, when it was obvious that uh, Germany won the war, was winning against was winning against France and and Britain at some point at the time. Mussolini decided it was time to go to war as well, to support its ally, and to, as he said, buy a place at the table of negotiations. And he, he was absolutely certain that war would end in a few days. 
it was absolutely certain that there and then Italy would um, uh, would be able to get a few spoils, such as um, probably maybe Malta, maybe maybe parts of the south of France, like the town of Nice, which used to be Italian this, uh, in the late 19th century, and um, and that was a miscalculation. Miscalculation because first of all, Italy uh, was not prepared for war. The the war was declared on a whim. There was no military preparation. There was no economic preparation. Most of the merchant fleet was across the world, just and was captured by by Britain and and or interned by neutral nations such as America and others. So so Italy lost like half of its shipping capacity in 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 a few days, and um, and the war went on, and uh, and many Italian uh, generals and 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 military actually warned Mussolini to that going to war against Britain which had the largest fleet in the world, would be very dangerous for the Italian fleet. They warned that the Italian army was uh, unprepared, but Mussolini said, well, we, we performed well well in Ethiopia and Spain, therefore <laughs> we will perform well against whoever uh, is on our path, but it didn't. And, uh, and, and that started a war which lasted much longer than, it, than, than Mussolini believed. And then Italy had no initiative and the, the military disasters started very quickly. Well, I think the role of Britain cannot be undersold. Uh, I remember uh, researching this uh, a few years ago, and I was looking at very old news articles talking about the, uh, the government of, of Italy during the 1920s with Mussolini. And Britain was already doing its best to try to win the propaganda war against Italy. I think they, they saw a problem there. Uh, and I, I agree with you. The, the British were some of the biggest colonialists in Africa uh, and in North Africa as well. And I, I cannot see this any other way other than that they saw the competition in Egypt and the Suez Canal and things like that, that they didn't want to deal with, uh, with an expansionist power in the Mediterranean. Uh, they also were key, uh, proponents of sending the allied forces in Europe to Italy first, as opposed to Germany, uh, or, or through, through France, uh, rather, uh, but ultimately to Germany. They, they began the campaign in Southern Italy, uh, over the objections of the Americans who actually wanted to attack Germany first. Uh, so the, the British, which again, it's very ironic. The British were actually very instrumental in creating Italy to begin with. It was sort of a, um, counterpoint yeah. to the other empires or powers within continental Europe. Uh, and they supported, uh, Garibaldi's movement and, uh, and they, I, I think it's a, it's a very old British strategy of supporting the weaker player, and then destroying them if they become too strong. That's true. That's true. In fact, uh, it's off topic, but certainly the, um, when Garibaldi invaded uh, Sicily, it was, um, well, this is not taught in Italian schools, of course, and still not today, but it's well known that, that Britain bought the, all the officers of the army of Naples to surrender. Uh, not unlikely what happened in the recent war in, in Libya, where NATO powers bought uh, the army com the army commanders of, of Muammar Gaddafi's war machine to to surrender and, and drop, and um, and and when you look at it, uh, it, it was against 
part of the game against Austria, Austria-Hungary, which was an empire that could be rival to to Britain in in the Balkans, uh, and of course in the late 19th century, uh, Sicily, which was part of Naples, had the biggest. Um, um, uh, how do you care? Uh, the, the 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 biggest source of of raw material for um, the match industry, you know, the light, oh, the sulfur, light, and the sulfur from the Etna, and sulfur was very important as a strategic material then. Yeah. To uh, for the industrialization of uh, and the gas using of natural gas in in Britain, not unlikely what. You know, Britain played to control the Middle East from around the 1910 for for getting control of the new source of energy, which was oil, which was becoming essential for the British fleet. So sometimes, yes, the empires and Britain was uh, very efficient in that. Do play other powers, minor ones against others. Italy, um, indeed, Britain supported Italy on its war against the Ottoman Empire in 1911, 1912. The, 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 I completely agree that it was Britain, foreign policy, who pushed Italy to be allied with um, with Germany and uh, and created the conditions for World War Two. In fact, yeah, uh, M- Mussolini was uh, very proud uh, before the war began, and I I do uh, think that when he met with Hitler, he felt like he was the the senior partner. Uh, during yes. the war, however, I think that changed very quickly uh, and to the point where Germany actually had to come in and, and save Italy in their campaign in Greece. And I think your book talks about that a little bit. Yes, that's correct. So when, when the war started and, um, you know, Italy probably should have concentrated on conquering Malta and perhaps securing North Africa against uh, the Britain, British in Suez, but instead... Uh, Mussolini probably wanted to make a show to Hitler and showing him that he could be uh, managing his own campaigns and 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 launched a war against Greece, which was um, even ideologically a very strange decision as Greece was very close to Germany and Italy in terms of political ideology. And, uh, and that war, which was supposed to be um, on paper, quick because clearly the Italian army and forces were superior in numbers and perhaps even in quality. But certainly launching war in in, in the mountains of Greece uh, across um, Albania, because Albania was, was an Italian territory at, the, at that point, um, in the middle of uh, autumn when there's lots of rain, actually I think the, the war started on October 28th, 1940, um, ended up in a disaster. And my grandfather's unit was called as part of the second echelon, the second offensive against Greece, which was to start in in February to, uh, 1941, and Mussolini really put a lot of troops uh, and, and 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 means because um, he had to show that the second offensive would be successful, and that coincided with the fall of Yugoslavia, by the way, uh, with the coup d'état against the king of Yugoslavia in in uh, in 41 and. When my grandfather was fighting in Greece, Germany intervened in Yugoslavia uh, on the side, of course, of Italy, and uh, and also pushed through with even the help of Bulgaria, with um, really a very daring campaign of um, paratroopers. Uh, we, we call this vertical envelopment, uh, dropping 
paratroopers on, on the mountain passes and even on the, 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 the canal of Corinth and had a very brilliant military um, campaign against Greece. And uh, Greece, who was quite successful fighting off Italy, just collapsed as its, its um, uh, front was, was pierced, pierced by German, German mechanized uh, intervention and forces. And so, and so my grandfather ended up in, uh, past, uh, spent the next two years of the war uh, as in, in a duty of occupation of, um, of Greece. His unit was a second, second line unit because he was already old. He was 30 years old, so it's not the prime, the prime age for troops. So he, he was on occupation duty. So there's, a lot of, there's quite a lot of chapters that describe how Italians were a bit ashamed, in fact, to occupy Greece, which was a friendly country, which was population was not dissimilar and poor as well, just as most Italian soldiers were in their own families. And they were, they were really wondering themselves, why are we in Greece and what are we doing here? And, 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 and in, in it, I show how the, the, the morale and, and, and determination, even if they were in fact victorious, victorious conquerors of, of Greece, there was something that was broken in, in the Italian morale. Whereas the Germans occupied Greece without second thoughts and were actually uh, fairly efficient in even sometimes in a brutal and dark way in their occupation, but they just considered it was a strategic um, land that enabled them to, to, to threaten British interests in the Mediterranean and from there hop on the Middle East. So they had a much more strategic, bigger, a better strategic vision. For Italy, Greece was something like... Uh, yeah, an annexion, uh, a country that would be part of the new Roman Empire, but that's a silly, that's a silly vision in the 20th century, where at least Germany had the vision of the natural resources of the Middle East on its site. It didn't succeed, but at least it was part of of something that made, had coherence in the in in a strategic sense. And um, uh, while while Germany was uh, you know in in, uh, in fighting on in the in the uh, Middle East in North Africa, across the Channel against Britain, but also with Operation Barbarossa in uh, in against the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa in which Mussolini also sent an army, uh, a small corps, which then became became the arm the Italian army in Russia. Uh, a lot of Italians were wondering, but are we are we going to war against the whole world because we usually we started against France and Britain because we had some limited objectives, and now we end up in Greece, in Albania, in Yugoslavia. We are fighting in Africa. We are fighting in North Africa. We are fighting in the southern Russia. Uh, we have to send our mountain troops in the Caucasus. I mean, come on, who? who and and of course, they declared war against America, and the the early the first uh, campaigns uh, started against Italy. In, and every campaign ended up as a as a loss. Italy lost Ethiopia, they lost Eritrea, they lost uh, um, Libya, and uh, they were starting to be. They lost Tunisia. They lost uh, the, the 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 bombs, the bombing campaigns of American and British bombers started to to attack Amer uh, Italian cities, and the industries of Italy were not as flexible and resilient as the ones of Germany proved to be. And, and suddenly you had an, a rich, an agriculturally rich country like Italy, who was suddenly not able, because of infrastructure being destroyed, to able to feed its population. And morale 
suddenly became um, very low. And, and this is what led to the armistice that Italy signed with uh, the Anglo-Americans on um, September 8, 1943, which was itself managed in an incredibly disastrous way. How do you think Italian culture has changed and been perceived um, from the time of your grandfather till now? Like there's this tendency now to conflate Italy with um, socialites and fashion and beautiful cars and amazing uh, cuisine and art. And a lot of Italian culture is now sort of aggregated into those key elements. And it's as if it's always been that way going back to the Renaissance. Um, but during your grandfather's time, it seems like Italy was uh, internally, people thought of themselves as um, a much different place. How do, you, how do you think it's been changed internally and how it's perceived both abroad and by Italians? Well, that's an interesting question because, in fact, I think that um, since at least the Renaissance, Italy has had uh, a reputation and factually was a high point of culture, food, uh, of uh, cuisine, as you said, fashion and things like that. When you look at uh, for example, Italian and, and French, but Italian perfume, Italian works of art, they have been valued and appreciated by the aristocracy and the elites of the world throughout, for example, in the 19th century, Italy was a, a massive uh, place of, of, of uh, villagiature, of, of holidays for the British, for example, um, uh, the rich nobility and the rich British people would go to Italy, to Tuscany, to, to Naples. In fact, it's, I, I believe it's a British who, who, who funded most of the digs in, in Pompeii. And, um, and, and, and Italy was appreciated if, if perhaps an industrial backwards, at least the south and the center, was appreciated for that. Uh, and you can read um, a lot of literature, literature about, about how in the 19th century and, and even in, the, in, the, in the, the, the first half of the 20th century, even Americans would go to, to, to rich Americans, of course, uh, the, 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 the East Coast elites would go to Italy on holidays. And, uh, the, uh, and the movie is, with Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Jude Law, the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, portrays this life uh, very well. They're East Coast socialites. They have a lot of money. They don't work, but they're in Italy for some reason, and they're just enjoying life. Uh, La Dolce Vita, and it's, um, it's, I think it's a very perfect portrayal of sort of how uh, the world viewed Italy. It was this sort of uh, pleasant place. However, people don't realize that um, Italy in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century was one of the leading providers of scientists in the, and science in the world. Uh, we, from from the Volta and electricity and, and the batteries in the late 17th century to Fermi, in, who ended up working in the Manhattan, being one of the lead managers of the Manhattan Project, lead, lead scientist, physician, um, sorry, not physician, you say in English, you say uh, physicist of the Manhattan Project in, in, uh, in America in the 1940s, uh, Italy had... Um, amazing developments of, of science and technology and industry as well. Even today, Italy is one of the leading uh, industrial powers of the world, and we're talking real industry, uh, trains, uh, electronics, 
of course, manufacturing is all outside of Italy. It's in Eastern Europe and in, in Asia. But um, Italy was, was always a, a country of innovation. And uh, however, the capacity to wage a modern war in 1940, the capacity to produce um, high, high quantities of good quality material, for example, Italy had very good aircraft but they produced a few hundreds where, where America could produce tens of thousands of P-51 Mustangs, for example. Uh, Italy could produce fairly reasonable, reasonable vehicles, for example, but only a few hundreds during the war, whereas America could produce, again, tens of thousands of M4 Sherman tanks. So the capacity, Italy had, had, had wonderful ships, but they could not match the quantity and and perhaps even the crew training quality of the British fleets. So, so it was it, it was just uh, impossible for Italy to wage war, and that was the biggest mistake that Mussolini, in, in his appreciation of the length of the war and, his, and the capacity of the armed forces of Italy, ended up to the disaster. And, and that disaster was was not uh, was was of course watched by Germany. Who, uh, because of its intervention in uh, in uh, Tunisia, in Sicily, in 1942, uh, could see that the picture on the wall would be that Italy would collapse at some point, and so started to plan for co a contingency plan on how to react in case Italy would collapse. And when the German uh, Abwehr, the, the the intelligence, figured out that Italy was negotiating with. Um, with the, the British and the Americans, um, the number of troops that were positioned around Italian troops across Greece, Italy, and so on increased. And when, in fact, the American, um, I think it was announced on the American radio on September 8th, one day before it was supposed to be announced uh, because of miscommunication between the Italian negotiation, negotiators and, uh, and, uh, and the, the English and Americans, well, Germany uh, snapped. The plan snapped, and the, the the that that operation of of German armed forces across that area um, was Operation Axe, which is uh, I think is uh, Ashes in in English. Um, basically, captured more than one million Italian troops in 24 hours. And when one thinks of that, of the logistical capacity. And the coordination needed to, to do that, one is just in awe to the genius of uh, German military planning. Because capturing one million troops across Italy and coordinating that to happen the same day, Greece, Yugoslavia, the different islands across, across the Aegean Sea, uh, was just an amazing uh, feat of logistic and coordination. And my grandfather was part of one of the divisions in, in, in Greece that was fortunately not attacked by Germans because there had been a few cases. I think the, the, the well-known movie Captain Corelli's Mandolin is shown, shows what happened to one of the divisions that actually Italian divisions who resisted uh, the German arrest and they were, they were severely uh, decimated. And my grandfather was captured at that point. And I describe in the book how this indecision and the 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 incapacity of the Italian command to give any order that made sense to the soldiers. So the soldiers didn't know what, what to do. 
And when the Germans came and said, look, we would like to, um, you know, drop your weapons and come with us, they say, well, they're probably sending us home. Wow. I, I didn't know the, the scale and speed at which the Germans captured the Italians was that great. Um, I, I'm curious if you know, uh, and this gets a little bit outside the book, but was this done in secret? And then all of a sudden, these troops that were thought to be friendly became enemies? Or was there just some sort of capturing of the train infrastructure? I mean, I can't even imagine what the plan was, but that's incredible. Yeah, the, the plan was, was uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it was General Kesselring who, who, who executed part of the plan. And he was one of the most brilliant military minds ever, probably. He's, he's not well known, not as much as Ron Merle or others, but he was probably you know, of a superior, uh, a superior mind for organization and, and a pure product of the German uh, military schools. Uh, very, very efficient and pragmatic. What was interesting is that the, the Italian com high command, first of all, it was split between people who were loyalists to the fascist regime, people who were loyalists to the king, and people who were, you know, basically loyalists to the alliance with Germany, and other people who were loyalists, or not loyalists, but they were eager to get with the British and, and the English and join, join who looked like would win the war at the time. So there was this split in multiple factions, which created a lot of indecision. The communication systems of the Italian armed forces were very slow. Um, you have to remember that in, 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 uh, in at the, well, actually, in the, at the time, the Germans had a lot of military attaches to every Italian unit in the land, in the areas where they were coordinating defense against the English and the Americans, including in Greece, but also in Italy. So basically, these military the, the military troops or officers, or German officers attached to Italian units were doing a lot of reports. They were giving um, information about location, and that was considered absolutely normal because they had to coordinate military movements in case of uh, American landings. And, and being the coast of Italy and Greece being so wide, so large, uh, landings could happen almost anywhere. So there was a good reason, there was a good pretext to, to control and, and know exactly where every single Italian unit was. And so when, when um, the order was given to the Germans to seize the Italian units, um, they knew everywhere, they knew exactly where to hit and, and where to, to capture. And in fact, the interesting, it, which is a subtle but very important detail, is that Germany was not at war with Italy, of course, because Italy was, was still an ally. So when Italy signed an armistice, uh, an armistice with, 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 with America and England, that didn't mean that Italy would be at war with Germany. It just means that Italy makes a separate, it's not even a peace, it's just a, a, a seizing of hostilities. And so Germany didn't go at war with Italy, it just seized the, the units, it just seized the military personnel. And, and, and basically said, now we would like you to drop your weapons, and we are going to control you and, and bring you into, you know, second line areas, so that you cannot fight us, <laughs> obviously. And, and so that created the situation, which is a legal, a little bit of a legal limbo, where Italy is non-belligerent, non and therefore units who are captured are not prisoners. 
And that was what was what made the Italian uh, situation and the, the soldiers who ended up in the camps in Germany difficult. Because since you're not prisoner of war, you're just a military internee, it has a very different legal uh, signification. And that means that you're not protected by um, the Geneva Convention on prison of, of prisoners of war, which Germany absolutely and very dutifully followed when it captured American, British, or French, or Dutch, or Belgian uh, soldiers, which were captured in a legal war. Italy was not at war with Germany. And so these soldiers suddenly, from one day to another, had their own allies, Germans, who captured them, but it's not necessarily with force. You could see a show of force. They could see that Germans were armed. They could see the, the, the machine guns nests in the heights, potentially killing them if they didn't accept. And in, there were the news of some units of Italy who resisted Germans who were slaughtered. And at the same time, the, the, the Italian command did not give any order to the Italian troops. They just said, we have an armistice with the English and the Americans, and you should resist any aggression. But when Germans came and said, now drop your weapons, this is not technically an aggression. It's an internment. And Italians said, well, if, they, if, they, if we drop our weapons, they're going to send us home. That's what most people thought. And so that's how, with a little bit of force, a little bit of uh, firm, firm orders, that million, actually it's a million two hundred thousand Italians got captured. And most of them were uh, sent to, to, to Germany where, uh, in fact, there was a first, uh, they were asked if they wanted to fight on the side of Germany with, uh, because at the same time Mussolini was, was liberated from, uh, from captivity by uh, Scorzeni's uh, commandos and, and parachuters. Um, he created, with the help of the Germans, a new republic in the north, or north part of Italy as the uh, Americans and English landed in the south, uh, south of Naples. And, um, and so a very few Italians actually chose to fight with Mussolini at the point because they were really fed up with the war. And they chose to stay in captivity, uh, most of them in, in Germany. And, and, and only later did the south part of Italy uh, had a provisional uh, government which enabled south of Italy to fight on the side of the English and the Americans, of the Allies, uh, at which point Italy... Uh, uh, entered a phase of civil war, which was extremely brutal. And, and again, this was not part of, of my book, but certainly it's a very interesting topic for people to read on, because Italy was not very aggressive in, in, in the official war. Italians became very aggressive in the civil war, and they were fighting between monarchists, fascists, and communists, um, you know, guerrilla bands, and the, the brutality on civilians on all sides, especially from the communists was was extremely brutal and extremely uh, cruel well your your book uh does describe uh with a lot of detail the time your grandfather spent in germany uh this was eastern germany what, what was the closest major city I, I remember you talk about dresden but is that the closest yeah. the, the closest biggest city was dresden but um the um, the the little the little uh, well the the place that the camp was was called Hermannstadt, but it's the um, 
that uh, suddenly the, 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 the name of the town eludes me. Actually, I have a chapter where I, I make fun of Italians trying to learn German names and German towns, which are in a semantic and grammatically very different uh, naming uh, structure than the Italian ones, of course. And um, that's near where there was the, um, what at the time was called Auto Union, today's Audi uh, factories in Eastern Germany. So it's in the southern part of East Germany. And uh, yes, there was the trains, they, they, they got there and I described in detail. And, and that detail was not so much what my grandfather told me. He basically told me, yeah, they were hungry. And he, he told me anecdotes about food. And, but I went to German archives to figure out how exactly was organized the life of these camps. So basically, of course, the discipline was, was very strict. The, um, I, was, I was surprised to discover how much German organization put, uh, um, how do you say, uh, an effort uh, on making sure everyone was clean. Every dress, every clothes, every person had to be thoroughly clean, washed at least once a week with every, every um, uh, garment going into um, uh, uh, special equipment that would make, make them against any lice or, or bad, uh, bad uh, um, risk of epidemics. And, and my grandfather was joking, said, well, we, we, we could die at any time, but at least we were dying clean, <laughs> which is not what you hear from, from usually accounts from from prisoners of war, where people say, "Oh, it was." It's not true. In Germany, the the, the cleanliness the, the, um, uh, was very important for Germans. They were obsessed about epidemics, rightfully so. In fact, that's what's happened. You know, most people in camps died from epidemics in the end uh, end of the war. Yeah, typhus. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, all that system couldn't work anymore. So, so I was surprised to see how efficient the, the system was to keep the people clean, how efficient it was organized, so that there were. People were organized in groups of a certain number so that it would be easy to count, easy to remember. Uh, every house and every door, while well, all these camps had big, long houses where everyone was in, and the calculation of every food, calorie, uh, quantity of calories and so on were calculated in a very scientific way. I was really surprised how uh, well, Germany was organized, uh, was organizing everything as a machine, as a, as a very efficient machine, including prisoners. Yeah, well, much of this was from uh, Albert Speer, who took charge of the war production effort. And his uh, his his mind was was very mathematical. Uh, and I think this yeah. pattern is is very well evidenced in the way the the camps they were labor camps i mean people think they were death camps but uh, that never made any sense to me even if you believe in the uh, holocaust story why would the germans destroy their own labor force it, it didn't make much sense that that theory uh and you talk about cleanliness we haven't really done a auschwitz show i don't think we ever will but uh there's lots of material out there uh look into what zyklon b was used for it had a lot to do with uh getting rid of lice so I think it's... Yeah, life was um, was a uh, was a big problem, and uh, and it was a responsibility of the of the prisoners to. And again, I, let me let me emphasize: this was not a death camp. This was a, a prisoner of war camp. The only difference was legally the Italians were not considered prisoners of war. In fact, in the camp there were areas where there would be American and English. There were grouped by language, uh, prisoner of war. There were 
other areas where they would be French and Belgian, and other areas where they would be Polish and Russians. Um, again, Russians, for example, were not exterminated in German prisoner camps. They were not treated as well as the English and, and Americans, if only because, just like the Italians, they were not receiving Red Cross parcels. And, and I explain, uh, you, you've probably seen as well in the book, the luxurious quantity of food that Americans, British, sometimes French, would receive in terms of the American Red, from the American and British Red, Red Cross, which were sending these guys food from all the all the way from Australia, including you know dried resins and canned tuna and canned food. No one starved in the American and and French. Uh, in no one starved in the German prison camps. That is just not true. And uh, however, the Italians and the Russians didn't have the Red Cross, the Russians, because it, the Russian was not part of it. But the Italian was because they were not at war with Germany. <laughs> so the Red Cross couldn't send uh, any, any, well, the Italian Red Cross would, why would the Italian Red Cross send food to Italians, prisoners who were not prisoners? And then the Italian Red Cross was completely disorganized. So they were only the Germans could or could manage to get some uh, uh, in packs and letters sent, but only much later later in the war. So in fact, it was the, while of course there was uh, harsh treatment for anyone who tried to escape or steal uh, anything, it was not um, sadist. It was not brutal in the way that maybe some movies might have shown, or maybe who, people who imagine um, concentration camps uh, for political prisoners or for foreigners, this was not the same at all. It was, it was not fun, it was not good, and you had to work, indeed, you're right. It, it was con all the prisoners were for extra food. They were convinced that they had to work in factories. My grandfather worked for the truck manufacturing um, of the engines of the Audi auto union trucks, uh, and um, because the food was better, so obviously, yeah, of course you would work. And in fact, when you when you enter those camps, when there is this famous writing, "Arbeit, Arbeit macht frei," working makes you free. The prisoners wondered if that was uh, a bit of a joke, or if it was actually true. And, and actually, they did find out that if they worked, they were fed, and they were fed properly if they did some good work. However, as the war went on, all of this system collapsed. And, and of course, then the food didn't arrive. Even the factories where they were working were, were flattened. I describe a lot of that in detail. And uh, yeah, and then they suffered, of course, from hunger and from the cold. And of course, Italians being a bit creative and, and um, you know, they had to organize black market with the French and the Americans to, to get food in. And even the Germans, by the end of the war, even the guards, and I, I think I show that there are some humane and obviously, of course, I mean, Germans are human beings, <laughs> obviously, and, and are humane. And there are even some friendship and bonds of, of friendship that create that are created between the guards and the prisoners. And... Um, they suffer themselves as well because their families maybe die in the war or in the bombings. Uh, Germany was prepared with food storage. Uh, they had stocked a lot of food in case of a long war, but at the end, that that storage was was finishing. There was no more sugar, no more coffee, no more 
um, flour to make bread and 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 so it became difficult for everyone so so I think the German authorities tried to fade to feed the prisoners of war as much as they could but when when in ni- end of 1994 and early 1945 the war got to the end um, the the prisoners could not be fed, just as the German people could not be fed. And, yeah. and by the end of by the end of World War II, like the German civilian population was, you know, uh, I'm looking at some data that's indicated that even German civilians, the average uh, calorie intake by 1945 is like 1,400 calories per day equivalent. Which is, you know, at that point you're riding pretty close to the tail end of a famine, and well, it had regressed you know, back to like the uh, the early Great Depression period in Weimar. When you can find photos of a German family of like seven or eight, you know, mom, dad, and the kids, and there's on the little table there's one loaf of bread and one long sausage, and the implication is that. The whole family is going to share like a three foot long sausage and a small loaf of bread between them for dinner. And had just yeah, kind of comes fallen, up over fallen and back. over in the like oh, yeah. Goebbels. I think it's Goebbels' diary. Like there's like copious documentation of how tight their food supplies were and trying to figure out like, OK, I have soldiers. They're carrying a lot of heavy stuff and running as fast as they can they get fed first, but I also need to feed the farm laborers because that's where food comes from. And now I'm, uh, I'm basically out of food. So what do you actually do? It's, it's not a great situation. And indeed, most of the, most of the dead in those camps happened in early 1945, which was also a very cold winter. And, uh, even if food was available, the disruption of the bombings uh, across Germany, of the destruction of the bridges, of the railways, just became so difficult to transport from one place to another. And as as you said, the priority was to the to the soldiers, to the war machine. And uh, and this is all of this is not to even to, to to. I think people who read my books, I don't have any um, hate or, um, or, uh, or 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 side in this story. I'm just describing the suffering of everyone, uh, of um, the the German people, uh, which you know in the la- later part of the book, you know, the, 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 my, my grandfather's camp was liberated by um, by the Soviet army, advancing Soviet army. The before that, of course, um, they, the prisoners were moved because they were kept as a as a as an exchange. Uh, Possibility against uh, against uh, even when the, the there was orders to shoot the prisoners at the end of the war, but this order was not was not carried through by the SS. The, the camps were managed by the SS by the end of the war, and the SS said, "Well, if we do something bad to to prisoners, we would be, of course, um, shot ourselves." And some of them were, even if they didn't do anything. Uh, by either Americans or Russians. So it was a very tense time in the last few months of the war. And my grandfather was telling me that he saw bombings and he saw a big city burn. And I figure I deducted that was Dresden, which was only a few, well, about 80 miles away. And so I described the bombing of Dresden by a British and American bombers, which was a, a, an incredible slaughter of civilians. And, um, and, I, and I tried to say, well, look, this is the point of, of, 
of the problem with war is you always know when it starts. You always think you're in a, it's a good idea and you will have victory. But in the end, it's a disaster. People suffer. Um, and this is why the, 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 we have to always remember, and this is, uh, you know, we describe all this destruction and suffering. And then, of course, people have the guts to talk about white privilege. I mean, all the people who died in this, in this story, all the people who died in Dresden, all the people who died in these prison camps, all the people who died in the war, whether it's in the Greek front, the Russian front, whatever, all these people were white. And, and, and why were they at war after all? And was there other people pushing them to war? So this is not the core of the story for sure, because I tell the story from the point of view of a, once again, of a simple man and, 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 and from the perspective of, of an Italian soldier, which, which is not a well-known story. Funny, if I open a small parenthesis, the, 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 at the beginning of the, well, the, at the genesis of the book, uh, I was contacted by, uh, by one of my literary agents in, uh, in the Anglo world. And he said, why, you know, we like your survival books and why don't you, why don't you write a book for a movie for Netflix? Because they look for stories. So I told him, well, look, when they look, I, I'm not sure <laughs> that they're going to take anything I write, but hey, what, what the hell I'm going to do? I'm, I'm trying. So I wrote a story and then he liked it and said, you should really get it published. It's a very interesting and original story, at least in the English world, no one, you know, there's very few stories about Italians in World War II. Uh, and he said, I don't know about Netflix. And I said, well, in the end, you know, I don't want to have, um, I don't want to have, um, I don't know, Cuba, Judy, Cuba Gooding Jr. to play my grandfather anyway, <laughs> or having uh, Morgan Freeman uh, playing uh, one of the camp guards. No, probably the Germans would always be white in Netflix, but <laughs> To have uh, you know uh, uh, <laughs> Italians played by, by black actors on a Netflix show, so I'm not sure it's going to happen ever. But um, but so I close that parenthesis. But certainly the the you know towards the end of the book, the the, the chaos you know, in Germany was so high you could see prisoners on the roads, escorted by old you know old guards who were veterans of World War One. You could see young 14-year-old boys in the SS moving, walking to Berlin for probably what would be their death, absolutely certain death, uh, to fight for the Führer. And you would have uh, German fleeing on the roads with horses and carts and cars, whatever, or by on foot in the snow, trying to flee the advancing Red Army because they knew how, how brutally they would be treated by the advancing Soviets. Uh, who were motivated by the political commissars to rape and kill uh, German men and certainly rape the woman. And, and this is a very sad. I, I know a lot of people who wrote the book, they were actually crying when they were into those chapters because when, 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 when Dresden, which was leveled, when you see that the survivors were brutally handled and the woman raped by the Soviet, I don't know, troops or... The, it's just sad. You, you even, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a human suffering level, you just can only realize how much suffering went on, and all of this for geopolitical reasons, which had nothing to do with the interest of the common people. And uh, and it's important, I think, to tell these stories because today we are at the <laughs> we are on the brink of 
the resurgence of this craziness, whether it's uh, uh, statism from uh, Bolsheviks who are running again the show in uh, many countries, or for people who are just uh, drunk with with uh, power and they want to impose whatever crazy ideas they have, we are we are entering again times that could lead us to disasters such as the one that we have seen in the end of World War II. And, uh, and we have to be, um, and perhaps it's too late, but we have to understand that these stories that, like the one I'm trying to tell using my grandfather as, a, as, a, as again, as a small guy, which you, you did probably notice towards the end of the book, suddenly he grows, he grows a pair. At some point, he, he stops being a, a subject of history and he wants to act. And he just says, stop, I'm not taking this BS anymore. I want to go home. And now that I'm not in a camp anymore, now that I'm surrounded, now that we have been liberated by the Soviets, can I go home? I want to go home. And, and the Soviet says, well, you do what you want. You're not into... You know, if you're here, we'll feed you. But if you go, we don't we don't care because we have a war to finish. And um, and this is also a, a, a not very well known fact of World War Two. But Italy had been at war with the Soviet Union, and so Italian prisoners, when liberated by the Red Army, they were scared that they would be treated just as bad as the Germans were. The Germans were decimated as well by when they were captured by by the Soviets. But Stalin, who was, um, you can say what you want about Stalin, but he was uh, politically astute. He knew that after the war, Italy was not in his uh, control, because Italy was, was conquered by Americans and English and French. But uh, the, he knew that there would be elections after the war. So he wanted as fast as possible Italian prisoners to go back to Italy. And they, he gave orders expressively to treat them well and to make a little bit of political indoctrination so that when they would go back, they would try to vote communist. And, uh, and that is why, and of course, my grandfather couldn't know that. So I explained this in, in, the, in, the, in the notes of the book. When, when the Soviets uh, liberated Italian troops, they treated them well, they fed them, they, they gave them clothes. But at the same time, they were busy fighting the war and trying to go as, as far west as they could to, to the order to join with the Americans and the English. And so when, when, so they basically brought the officers, which had been separated from the troops, the Italian officers, back with the Italian troops and basically said to the officers, well, you manage your troops. And so the officers started again to, 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 to boss around the Italian uh, soldiers, which after two years being alone and in camps, they were fed up with that. They were fed up with the war and receiving orders. So in fact, a lot just said, well, go to hell and, um, and, 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 and went home. And my grandfather was part of those who went home by foot in, uh, in May and June uh, to, uh, 1945. And he, he told me that he, crossed, he, he went across what was to become the Czech Republic. And he witnessed um, uh, ethnic cleansing by the Czechs against Russian Sudeten, the, the, the people, the Germans, the ethnic Germans who were living in those areas. And um, I, I, I made a story where he, where he meet a German survivor, which was, I think, quite an interesting story for, for readers to, to see the point of view of uh, those Germans. Uh, and then he ended up in Bayern, in, uh, in the American zone, and he could 
that is obviously my my I must admit this was my thing but I added the awe that he has when he crosses American held areas to see the vast quantity of military material that America has mobilized for this war and he he, he was in awe when he saw um, the the quantity of Soviet troops and machines and when he gets into near München and he sees the the immense quantity of American troops and materiel and tanks and artillery that were under Patton's Third Army, uh, he was he just has this realization that what the hell were they trying to do in Italy against such powerful powers in the world? And so he has this realization that he, like many millions of others, have been played. In fact, they have been lured into a war that they had no chance of ever winning, at least on the Italian side. And so eventually he gets home, and, and I think you, you will see that uh, in what happened when he gets home, because we think, especially in today's culture, in America, we talk about these people as the greatest generation. And these veterans have been well treated. They came home, they came back to America, they had college paid for them, they, had, uh, um, they were treated as heroes. And people like my grandfather, when they came home, people were just out of the civil war. They had the cities bombed. They had no time to, to listen to what he went through in, in German camps. So, you know, they basically said, well, look, I'm sure that what you have to say is very interesting, but we're all really busy working and building the country again. So why don't you shut up and come and help us to work? <laughs> And, uh, and 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 I rem- and and I uh, I tell the story that of course someone jokes saying who knows maybe some people will be bold enough to actually make money out of telling stories of being in camps and another guy says well that can't be no one is no one has so much uh, you know um, <laughs> so much will be as no one would be as vulgar and crude to actually try that. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's important to understand how this happened. Um, yeah, I was I was a little bit surprised by the reception that uh, your grandfather said he got when he got back. Uh, people were complaining that their experience had been worse than being a prisoner or at least an internee in a very uh, very difficult part of the world that was being bombed and running out of food. But I think you made the good point that people have a hard time understanding other people's suffering unless they're together. And it's the lack of empathy, I think, that causes a lot of conflict to begin with. And it's really the sympathy that brings us together. Um, I don't know what lessons we can draw from this because, unfortunately, we don't have the ability to influence our government. Uh, I think that's become very clear recently. But um, (laughs) short of, of walking into the the forest and disappearing, which is what a lot of uh, your work actually focuses on and how to actually survive these situations. How do we little people manage and navigate the future with the, the global uh, tensions that seem to be uh, being amplified by the leadership to either distract us or to just to gather more control for them? It is very difficult. Because clearly the lesson from those times was maybe um, one should voice uh, his opinion. Maybe one should look for the truth. 
one maybe one should challenge the leaders um, and the organization that they lead, the, the, the state, to do what's really good for, for the people and not what, what is good for anyone's ambition or agenda, but to focus on the people. And um, especially today, I think we have to be very careful and, and, and attentive not to be dis, um, uh, demotivated. We've, we've, we've been suffering for 50 years, if not more, of propaganda against us as people, as a race, as a, as a, as a, as a people, as a nation, as a, and I mean this in the anthropological point of view. Uh, everything has been made to, to, to antagonize us, to demotivate us, to make us feel powerless, to make us feel um, uh, weak and isolated. And perhaps these kind of stories show us that, first of all, there is hope in, in, in going through even the direst and the worst uh, situations. Uh, and, and, and in our, you know, you know I, we, we know people in Israel who tell stories about how you survive extermination. Okay, well, uh, let's assume the stories are, are correct and true. Well, there is a lesson to be taken, is that even, even when there is attempt of extermination, true or exaggerated, there is still hope, there is still survival, there is still something. And the survival can happen in many ways. Indeed, you can be, uh, you can be one day after the other. Uh, you can take one, one, uh, one little step after the other. After all, we're not yet, not yet in the world of 1984 of George Orwell's book. Uh, we're getting there, but we're not yet completely there. We're certainly not yet, we're also getting there, in the world of uh, uh, the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. We're not yet in Stalin's world. We're getting there, but we're not yet there. So we can move, we can uh, get on the fringe, we can uh, disappear, we can get, uh, we can regroup elsewhere, we can regroup within countries. After all, some countries, Eastern Europe, had 50 years of communism. And they survived. They survived actually pretty well. Uh, so maybe we can think of ways to organize ourselves, to communicate, uh, to beat censorship. We can go uh, degrees of, um, of uh, uh, technology lower that don't allow so much surveillance and censorship. Uh, there are many, many ways, and we should explore many of those at the same time simultaneously, because we have, we have lost a lot of ground where we shouldn't have. And it doesn't mean that we need to lose much more, but of course, when you face this, the power of the state and you feel that you're alone, it's difficult. But when you're many together, maybe you can organize. And maybe the point is not to conquer power in the capital in, or in the, the, the capital city of the country. Maybe it's good enough to have power within your area. And by power, I mean independence and freedom. I'm not talking about ego and deciding and policies. Maybe, maybe just have living in a, in a county where your, your ideas, your philosophy is majority and therefore no one comes and tells you what, how and how to live. Uh, and sometimes you have to be smart. Sometimes you have to do secret, things in secret. Um, you know, people had fun. People reproduced, met women and men and had children in the depths of Russia during the communist times, in the 
during the, the, the occupation of Czech Republic and Poland and Hungary, um, they survived. So there are many ways. So in fact, the, the point is not to be uh, demotivated, not to be, uh, not to feel dark. I know it's sometimes difficult. Right now it's difficult time. I know for all of us, for all the world, unless you're Chinese, but that's another story. <laughs> it's certainly we are entering dark times for children, for, uh, for, for anyone who likes freedom. And um, so maybe these stories can help us to take some hope, to take some ideas. And maybe a lesson is that you have to tell the truth instead of just going along with the flow. There is some risk doing that, however. So it's up to us to think what kind of risk are we willing to take. But uh, I certainly am not the one who will tell people what to do. I'm just exploring options and giving ideas. You know, you, you said something earlier that stuck with me. Um, you, in the context of Garibaldi's invasion of the South, you mentioned that it's not taught in Italian schools or conventionally in Italian schools. Um, uh, is the Italian story of the 20th century not adequately taught as well? Is it, in your estimation, you know, anything akin to the story that you've told is anything like that in the mainstream Italian education system? Do people uh, take to heart Italy's sacrifices during the war? Do they do they try and see both sides, or is it never really presented to anyone as something a bit more human than just a series of events? Yes, in in, in at school and in the narrative post World War II. Um, there has been many official narratives that have been a bit, a little bit in conflict, because the left, the communists, the progressives, they have a narrative which that is different than the one from the state, because um, they they play to a different uh, clientele, customers, uh, voting customers, different plantations, let's put it this way, and um, and so the, there has been in Italy a flexi, uh, different voices and even different official stories which were conflicting, which is quite quite unique and probably un unsurprising if you know Italian characters and the difference between the North and the South and the, the bourgeoisie and the, and the working classes. So, and, and all of this is taken with, um, with, a lot of, uh, with a lot of salt, not just a grain of salt, but a lot of it, in the sense that, you know, Italians, they have the king and then they have fascists and then they have democracy. But what really matters is to have good food and go on the motorcycle and check out the nice girls. So there is something of the, the genius of Italians is to not care too much. But on the other hand, it has the flow of not being able to organize and, um, and really to, to find themselves only during crises. And right now, 2021, at the beginning of 2021, Italy is one year into the worst crisis since 1945, much worse than any economic crisis that is, it has ever uh, gone through since 1945. Uh, because the, the policies against this thing <laughs> that, we cannot, that we cannot even name in most networks has been, the policies have been so disastrous on the economy that the, the, the people are, are, are at the breaking point. They are at the point of revolt. They are at the point of not caring anymore and not following any rule that the government says anymore. Because they also figure out that the statistics 
you know, statistics don't lie. When you have 0.05 death rate, even if you show death people and all dead people on TV every day, after a while, you start to add up one plus one, and usually it makes two, not three. And so Italy is, a, is a right now at the breaking point. And where will that lead? Impossible to say. Uh, most of the young are unemployed. The economy, the small businesses, which are the, the heart of the Italian economy, are almost dead. And they were forced to die. This is what is, and this is not, there's no customers. This is, you are forced to be closed. For one year, shops have been closed very often and in a very, um, I don't know if it's the same in, in the United States, but in a very, one day it's, you have to close at six o'clock and then next week it's nine o'clock in the evening and then it's restaurants, but not gyms and that it's gyms, but not restaurants. All of this looks like torture, like psychological torture. And maybe it is, but it also looks a lot like incompetent uh, buffoons that are politicians not knowing what they do and trying to pleasure the different lobbies from the economy, from the, the pharmaceuticals, from uh, the, the international organizations that, want, that push agendas. So all of this looks like a mess and people, when, when they have enough and the food in the fridge is, is decreasing and there's no more money on the 20th of the month to pay the month, well, this is where revolutions happen. And uh, Italy is, is pushed at this as, because it was a resident economic crisis before this, 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 this COVID crisis. And because of internet people, you know, they look for information and, and the majority of people don't believe the narration anymore. They don't believe the official stories anymore. So who knows where it goes? It's very, it's really difficult. There was a, there was a speech or a uh, presentation given in the Italian parliament talking about, I think, naming Bill Gates like an enemy of Italy. I don't know if you saw that. That was uh, in the beginning of 2020. I don't remember the details, but I was, I was uh, only shocked because, of course, we talk about this constantly in the United States about the conspiracy to depopulate the human race with some kind of injection. But, um, you know, we don't, you, don't, you probably don't have Alex Jones in Italy, but it was surprising that the government was actually raising things like that because in the U.S. Congress, they never talk about reality. It's, it's always fantasy. Uh, and that was shocking to me. I don't know if you saw that, but if you have any comments. Yes, I'm... yes, I, I do. And Italy, because there are many parties, uh, it's actually, you know, in Switzerland where I live and, and, and there is also the same thing, the, the biggest party, the opposition party in Switzerland, which is the biggest, um, has voiced not yesterday, uh, basically is asking for a confidence vote against the minister who's managing the, the crisis, which is a socialist not unsurprisingly, and basically saying that uh, the crisis has been mismanaged and that there is abuse of power and they don't know what they're doing. So we start to have, in countries where there is uh, opposition and many political parties, we start to have political parties who, who, who are, you know, taking advantage of the people's discontent. And for once, you know, it's really uh, welcomed. Of course, in one-party systems like... Um, the, the, like in the US more and more, like in France, like in Britain, you don't have that. And, uh, and so there is this, um, you know, you, they double on the, on, the, on the bet that they have to continue and do more and more authoritarian uh, laws. And now, unfortunately, 
there is censorship as well in Italy today, just as there is in Switzerland, just as there is in, in France, because we use the same social network, the same news, and the, 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 the state-owned news are corrupt, of course, just as the state is. And by, by corrupt, I don't mean just money. Uh, in every single country, including in Italy, including in Switzerland, we have people getting caught for pedophilia in the media, in the left, and uh, it's common. And, and of course, people are upset about that, obviously. Um, in um, the, the private-owned media, well, they are part of big groups, and they're the same as in the US, and they all say exactly the same thing the same day, with the same images, the same narration. And I mean, a lot of people notice, <laughs> they kind of notice that it's, there is a plan. We don't know exactly what is the plan, but there is a plan. This is, uh, this is clear. And I, I have this feeling, but maybe I'm, I'm just hopeful. I'm wishful thinking maybe, but I have a feeling that this, they have overplayed the hand here. And maybe they are winning in the U.S. right now because of the, 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 the situation that, that we have seen over the last six months. And maybe soon-to-be former President Trump was not exactly the Napoleon Bonaparte most of us hoped in the world. It's <laughs> <laughs> too old for that, by the way. But, um, but still, I think there is a revolt feeling. There is, um, and again, we should not be demoralized. But certainly I see, it could be that they overplayed their hand. I mean, everywhere you see majority, and I really mean majority of people who are against vaccine. And uh, it's not for me to say, I'm not a doctor, whether it's good or bad, but usually when something is new and untested, you should try to be cautious with it. And even if it's a car or a computer, don't buy the first model, wait. And, and again, for what? For something that kills 0.05% of the population? Uh, you know, people notice. People, people know that no one knows people who die. So, I don't know, after a while, you say, yeah, grandpa died, but he was 94 years old. Yeah, well, you know, it happens. Mm -hmm. He would have died anyway. So, um, and, and the media play, out, play up, of course. Oh, there's this 21-year-old girl who died the other day. Yeah, but that's one out of, a, out of millions. So, um, people, are, people are stupid, but not that stupid. They, they, I think more and more there is a, a anti-narrative that starts to be to grow. Of course, it's censored. It's censored big time, but people talk, and every single person I talk in the last month is upset. Whether it's in Italy, in France, or Switzerland, where I live, everyone. And I tell you, upset people in Switzerland. That has never happened. Yeah. I, I have to ask you, because last time you visited our show, I asked you about the World Economic Forum in Davos, in Switzerland, and there has been a bit of a, a talk on the internet about this Klaus Schwab character who has been talking about the Great Reset with extreme detail, which... I almost have a hard time believing, but there were uh, there was a video. Well, his new shtick is the uh, the fourth industrial revolution bit, where he speaks about like merging your physical and digital identity, and it's I mean, <laughs> it's like Looney Tunes tier um, bad guy narrative. You know, he's just I think on some level there they must get a kick out of. Uh, 
being this obvious and getting away with it. Well, also what he, his organization was talking about in this video that I saw was how uh, people are not going to live in the country anymore. They're going to live in these smart cities. Uh, they're going to eat uh, plant-based food. Uh, meat is going away. Uh, and we're not going to own anything. And lastly, we're right. going to be happy because <laughs> because he tells us to. What do people in Switzerland think about this man and about what the people who are not really Swiss, who are basically the the billionaires and oligarchs of the world who meet in Davos. What do they think about that man, his organization and the people who go to Davos? Yeah. Now I, I met the guy once and, um, oh, great. <laughs> and my father, when he was in business and we're talking 20 years ago, so everyone was much younger. He was kind of friend of, with him. Uh, and I've been to Davos World Economic Forum once when I was in, in the business, in the industries, to, to be there when I was working for Salesforce.com. Uh, I was there to host um, people like Michael Dell and other, other of these rich, well, powerful guys who were going there. So my impression is this. First of all, these guys, they're a think tank. It's like the Bilderberg Conference. It's not exactly... You know, we, we have to put this in a real thing. It's people who kind of think alike, who meet... And um, clearly there's an agenda, clearly they have, they have um, directions of thought, and they sometimes test ideas, and what you describe is, you know, what they say, it's not, it's not a secret, this is why it's not a conspiracy, it's, it's absolutely open, and it's a, but what I would say is, first of all, even the, the people who attend, they don't all agree, they're in the same world, of course, they, 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 dine together, they, they mingle together, they have sex together sometimes, <laughs> but they're in the same world. So, so they, they disagree sometimes, just as, a, as you would disagree in a high school. So it's the same dynamic. And people say, no, your ideas are crazy. And, uh, and some people say, well, after all, communism for the poor people is a better idea because popular, poor people are stupid. So let us, let us, rich people, keep being in the capitalist world and the state manages the masses as cattle and for a while. And when, when there will be not enough resources for everyone, we will have machines and we don't need the poor people anymore. So th that's one trend. Another trend is for people to say, no, let's have market forces manage the thing. But let me, let me, have, um, uh, let me have a good impression of myself by having social uh, ideas and generosity, especially if it's done with other people's money. So you have this kind of uh, rich people in a bubble talking about stuff, but they don't really realize the reality of the world. And, and I think a lot of people, they just, I mean, a lot of the, the, the common people, they, they don't really like these guys, but not yet with hostility. Because it's not, a, they're not yet a machine. And, and probably they advance, like many of those things, you know, to two passes, they make two passes forward and then they move back one. Uh, they, they tell, oh, vaccination must be uh, mandatory. And then they say, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. So vaccination will be, you know, suggested and private companies would probably make it, make it mandatory, but the state will never make it mandatory. And then maybe five years from now, they will say, oh, no, no, it has to be mandatory because anyway, a majority of people are already doing it if, if they're still alive. And, and so the, the, 
this is a, this is not a monolith. It's very movable. And uh, as for uh, as for the 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 the, the people. I'm not sure that these plans will 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 be advancing uh, as fast as these people would like, because there are, you know, China and Russia. They don't play this game, and vast majority. This is a game only played by, uh, yeah, some rich people, but who are in control of the West. But the rest of the world is chaotic. It's you know, you think African countries they, they follow the rules? They don't follow the rules. They have they they play lip service, but they don't follow. Latin America doesn't follow. Asian countries has they're doing very well. Thank you very much. They have their own agendas. They don't want. They don't care about all these things. Uh, so so this seems to me my my opinion, and it's just me. I, I'm not. I don't know if I'm right or not. This seems to me like people discussing. Um, you know, the gender of angels uh, when the enemy is at the gates. In, in, uh, that's a reference to Constantinople's siege in 1453 uh, or, and, and uh, 52, sorry. And the, the, um, this seems to me like the craziness of, of people who are in a bubble while the world is, the house is burning around them. We have energy problems, we have resource issues, we have uh, uh, people losing jobs massively in the West, and they talk about putting chips in people's under people's skins. I mean, <laughs> I I am worrying for their lives, in fact, and their long-term survival. But what do I know? <laughs>